Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we revisit a show about people behind Appalachian crafts. For some reason, I feel like you're more part of the water. Paddling with a wooden paddle feels more spiritual somehow. And we'll meet airplane welder Carl Witt, who loves repairing old cuckoo and grandfather clocks. Some of those clocks, like I said, that are 200 and some years old are still running. Also, we'll travel to some of the most beautiful spots in Appalachia to find wildflowers. Dolly Sods and the Canaan Valley of West Virginia. But are these places becoming too popular? It took over an hour to get out of the park on a Saturday because the traffic was so backed up. These stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're listening to an encore episode hosted by Caitlin Tan and me. It begins with stories about getting outside in one of the most spectacularly beautiful places in Appalachia, Dolly Sods. In case you're not familiar, it's this wild place full of rocky ridges, soggy bogs, and beautiful views. It's federally protected land. And it's the site of an annual nature walk called the West Virginia Wildflower Pilgrimage. It's held each May. Back in 2021, I decided to make the pilgrimage myself. So, Mason, had you walked it before this year? No, but my dad was a biology professor who specialized in the plants and trees of Appalachia. He passed away in 2011, but this kind of event would have been right up his alley. Oh, really? How how so? My dad would have known these wildflowers, these birds. There were a lot of folks like that in the Canaan Valley when I was there in May. Like Margot Cavalier, who came down from Pittsburgh. It's been a while since I've been hiking up uh, in Dolly Sods, and I'm anxious to go with a bunch of people who know what they're looking at. I'm, I'm beginning to know what I'm looking at, but uh, it'll be great to go with uh, some pros. Bill Beatty, a naturalist from Wellsburg, West Virginia, leads the excursion. His is the only trip during the pilgrimage weekend where participants are required to come up to speak with him ahead of time. He needs to know they'll be able to complete the hike. It's not for the faint of heart. You know, people come up to me and say, uh, we walk in in the mall three days a week, five miles. And and I used to let them go on, but uh, now if if someone says that to me, I say, this isn't even close to what you experience in the mall. Beatty is joined by a Forest Service biologist who really knows his birds, mosses, and lichens. And a botany professor. These are my dad's people. They remind me of how he talked to his friends dropping goofy, plant-based puns, and cracking a lot of inside jokes. And what family are Bluettes in? Ruby AC. Matter family. It does matter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we stopped here. They'll be here all day, folks. (laughs) Now, Beatty knows this landscape at Dolly Sods really well. I stopped here because you see the opening down there? Yeah. At the far end of that opening, we're going to be coming this way that's the dog leg of Alder Run Bog. Alder Run Bog is the bog where Northland Loop Trail goes down to. Some of us may get wet feet. The trip leaders like Beatty point out wildflowers along the way, but the group's members have plenty of expertise themselves. Like Melissa McCormick, a scientist at the Smithsonian Research Center who lectured about orchids the night before. Here she is talking with Margot Cavalier and others in the group about a flower known as trailing arbutus. 
This is what you're referring to? Yes. Oh, pinkish white. Yeah, there's another oh. little flower right here. Oh, it's beautiful. And, oh, there's a little pocket of flowers right here. Oh. Now, my dad's big thing was trees. Besides teaching at the local community college in my hometown, he spent a lot of time traveling around and doing research all through the mountains, including right here in Dolly Sods. My dad's probably rolling over his grave. Do we, what's the evergreen that's through here? I stink at trees. <laughs> now, I used to know my trees, but the thing with specialized knowledge is if you don't use it, you lose it. But I knew there was something about those trees. What was the uh, dominant evergreen we were seeing back in that area we started out in? Uh, red spruce. Red spruce? Yeah. I knew my dad was rolling in his grave when I asked that question. I even said it, and his specialty was red spruce, so he oh, was really? definitely doing, getting a workout. The biggest red spruce in the world were probably in Canaan Valley and up here, and they were all timbered, everything. I helped my dad on some of his red spruce plots, which were sprinkled up and down Appalachia's high elevation spots. He kept close track of what spruce stands looked like, what else was growing, and how healthy these trees were, especially the oldest ones. He stayed faithful to these red spruce trees, checking in on them every couple of decades, sometimes more often. Of course, there's more to this hike than just the spruce stands. Okay, let's do this. We're gonna head down towards the bog and get our feet wet. Beatty calls this the Allegheny Front Vista Trail. It crawls all over, down through a bog, up and down rock fields marked by stacked cairns, and through dense thickets of rhododendron and mountain laurel where Beatty found paths, probably cut by hunters years ago. After miles of tromping, we climb a mountain ridge into a thicket of chokeberry, at which point even Beatty gets turned around. We're gonna get back down Okay. Reverse engines. Back. Reverse engines. We're going peoples. back. <sighs> but at the end, we're rewarded with a beautiful vista looking down into a valley. And then. Whole valley. The whole valley's full of a rainbow. They may have to take get a sunglasses here. off. Oh, okay. One of the trip members notices a rainbow down in the valley. It's really faint at first, but as the sky changes, the colors become more vibrant. Everyone runs over to check it out. <laughs> the experience, and especially that unforgettable ending, leave the hike's participants worn out, but also exhilarated. I asked Margot Cavalier about what she's feeling. Oh my God, that was phenomenal, wasn't it? With that fog bow at the end. Whoa, it was just, I mean, I can't believe it. It was just fantastic. I just turned 68, and it kind of makes me feel like, you know what, while I can do this, i got to push myself like this. It's, just, it's wonderful to be out here. You just feel so alive, you know what? For me, the hike brought me closer to my father, who died 10 years ago this fall. These are the places he walked, with the kind of people he walked them with. So, Mason, it sounds like you were able to see another side of Dolly Sods that we don't always get to see. Yes. For one, the trail was totally crazy and sort of off the beaten path from where most people go. 
But also there just weren't many people there that weekend. I think the snow scared a lot of folks away. And these areas are getting more and more crowded. I heard a lot of stories about how jammed the roads could sometimes get. And the crowds have gotten thicker since a new road from Washington, D.C. opened up a few years ago. We'll talk about that more a little later in the show. But first, let's get out on the water. Appalachia has several huge rivers, like the Gauley, the Yakagani, the New River, and whitewater paddling is pretty popular in the region. But it wasn't that long ago that modern paddlers first started exploring these rivers, and they designed their own gear and even built their own paddles. Some of those DIY paddle makers are now master crafters, and their work is in high demand. Folkways core reporter Clara Hazlett has more. It's a cloudy day on the New River. I'm in a canoe, pulling a wooden paddle through the water. The lyrics of a love song are stamped on the glossy blade. Oh, this is so cute. Is this the one you made for your wife? The paddles maker is John Rue. He's alongside me in a bright blue kayak. It's it's a Dylan song that says, I got a bird that whistles, I got a bird that sings. I got a bird that whistles, I got a bird that sings. But if I ain't got Rachel, life don't mean a thing. (laughs) (laughs) The paddle is striped with different kinds of wood. It's lighter than I expected, but sturdy too. It can withstand white water. Wooden paddles aren't all that common in whitewater kayaking and rafting. When I was a raft guide for a summer, I'd occasionally see the flash of a wooden paddle on the water. And I'd always think, man, that is a good looking paddle. It was always the best paddlers who used them. And each paddle had its own story. This section of the New River isn't far from John's home in Blacksburg, Virginia. He runs his own business there, out of his basement. Shade tree paddles. Yeah, this is, this is the paddle rack. This one here, this is one of the first paddles I ever made. I used it maybe once because it was it's not funky. very good. It's funky. <laughs> yes, that is a polite way <laughs> to describe it. John started making paddles after studying sculpture and ceramics in college. I felt like I had a lot of, a very wide pool of skill, but it was a very shallow pool. He says he wanted to focus on one skill and become an expert at it. He chose paddle making because of his love for whitewater kayaking. It's taken him about 10 years to master. Because it's not easy. It's a slow, complex process that requires specific, high-quality wood. You know, you can't go to the builder supply and buy any old thing. Inuits are credited with inventing what we know as the kayak and the double-faced paddle. But these designs weren't made for whitewater, and for centuries, many rivers were largely deemed unnavigable. But with the technology that emerged from World War II, like fiberglass and synthetic rubber, adventurers took to the rivers learning to canoe, raft, and kayak on whitewater. People had to make their own gear. Uh, People had to make their own kayaks. And then there would be people who would build paddles. People like Keith Backland. In all of my conversations with different paddle makers, I kept hearing Keith's name. They say he revolutionized wooden paddle making. His paddles were made for whitewater. And they were so special, they were known by his last name. They were these prize possessions, you know, and you'd say, hey, can I try your paddle? And they'd say, heck no, that's my backland. <laughs> Nobody touches my backland except for me, <laughs> you know. Keith died soon after John started getting into paddle making. 
But his legacy was carried on by the apprentices he took on during his career, starting with Jim Snyder. The, the way that I build a paddle is directly related to how Jim and Keith build paddles. John would study Jim's paddles and email him with questions about both the building process and the business side of things. One of the things that uh, Jim told me early on is that paddle making is a vow of poverty. And, uh, and like most things, he has proven to be correct. <laughs> John sells his paddles for close to $600. And while that might seem like a good chunk of change, when you consider the weeks and sometimes months of labor involved... I'd be hard-pressed to be able to go full-time. John works at a wood shop to support his family and just makes paddles on the side. But Jim Snyder has been a full-time paddle maker for about 47 years. I called him up at his home in Preston County, West Virginia, to ask him about it. You know, having real financial support for myself would have been a smart thing, but I just wanted to play a lot. <laughs> And I didn't care if I was poor and hardly had enough firewood. He told me it hasn't been a financially stable career, but it's been fulfilling. If you look at it from my perspective, there was actually the danger of getting a job that would pull me into some you know, career track that I didn't really want to be in because I really wanted to be a paddle maker. Jim says making paddles is a transformational process. Turning a tree in the ground into a paddle in the water is like bringing the wood back to life. You know, the wood, when it's cut down and stored, is like it goes to sleep. Then when it's finally built into a paddle and reduced to being a paddle and used on the river, it thinks the wind is still blowing. <laughs> and the paddles he makes are built to last a lifetime. Like, I simply cannot paddle without a gym cider paddle. It's like my lucky charm. That's Christine Vogler from Asheville, North Carolina. Once I started kayaking, my shoulder would just dislocate all the time. Um, so I would reach for, like, the handle of a door, and my arm would pop out a socket. She tried physical therapy and eventually had surgery, but she kept having pain until she tried one of Jim Snyder's paddles. I mean, it, I just was able to paddle without pain. It was revolutionary for me. Paddlers say wooden paddles aren't as stiff as the ones off the shelf, making them more gentle on the body. Christine sees it this way. For some reason, it feels like you're more part of the water, working with the water, moving with it. Paddling with a wooden paddle feels more spiritual somehow. There aren't many custom paddle makers in the region, like John Rue and Jim Snyder. And there's high demand. John has already started a wait list for next year. And Jim has stopped taking any new orders until things slow down. Jim says it's a supply issue. He's the supply. The supply's not meeting the demand. And the supply doesn't want to. He says he's not interested in scaling up. He'd rather spend his time on the river. And in the summer, almost every day, I work half a day and go play half a day. And that works just fine. Back in Blacksburg, John chips away at a paddle, slowly carving it with hand tools. I'm trying to come to grips with the fact that, like, there's significantly more efficient ways to do this, but this is kind of how I like to do it, so I think I'm just going to keep doing it that way because otherwise it wouldn't be so much fun then. He's always experimenting with new designs and trying them out on the water. I ask him if it's ever frustrating. He says no. If I did it right the first time, then I wouldn't have to build any more, I guess. You know? <laughs> John says the craft has also kept him focused on being on the water. I get a little jealous of the paddles that they're, they get to go out more than I do. 
I got a bird that whistles. I got a bird that sings. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Heaslett. Clara's story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which is all about the art of everyday life. Whether it's through food, music, or crafts, people in Appalachia are passing on traditions and adapting them in some surprising ways. Coming up, we'll meet a man who makes turkey calls. But these turkey calls are more than just hunting tools. They're works of art. That story and more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Like a lot of Appalachian traditions, turkey calls go way back. Historically, they've been used as a hunting tool, but one West Virginia artist has taken it to the next level. Brian Aliff makes handcrafted, prize-winning decorative turkey calls. These works of art are functional, and they're fast becoming collector's items. But it took a while for Aliff to think of himself as an artist. Connie Kitts has his story. Put that right there, I mean, that's classic. That's classic turkey. That's Brian Aliff. And that sound? It's from a small wooden instrument known as a turkey call. We're up in the woods where turkeys had been earlier in the day. Brian opens up a bag of his handmade calls. There's an intricate hunting scene painted on each one. They look too pretty to hunt with. He hands me a round one about the size and shape of a snuff can or a drink coaster. The style's known as a pot call. It has a red-streaked wooden rim surrounding a crystal disc. I can see the image of a turkey etched on a piece of slate underneath. Old timers call them slate calls because it's all they used to all just make, be made out of slate, and then people started experimenting with different surfaces and stuff. Brian puts what's called a striker, a short stick with a flared tip, against the slate, and he makes short jerking strokes. Honestly, it's not the sound that gets me. It's Brian's artwork. One pot call has a small turkey feather under the glass, and it's carefully painted with two gobblers. The detail is remarkable down to the iridescent colors of the bird puffing his chest. I didn't set out to be a call maker. I'm an artist first, and uh, I painted on feathers. The first time I saw those painted feathers, they were on display in a local art gallery. Truthfully, I never called myself an artist ever in my life before I got involved with Gary. Gary is Gary Bowling of Bluefield, West Virginia, who's a nationally recognized artist. He established a gallery and a nonprofit studio in Bluefield that promotes the work of Appalachian artists. I talked with him by phone. Gary says when Brian first showed him his painted feathers... Yeah, I mean, he showed up and he said, what do you think? I said, oh my God. I said, you're more of an artist than I would ever have to be. Brian didn't have a background in art. 
He was a steel worker fabricating structures for coal processing plants. Brian is not, has not been to an art institution. He has really not been trained to do what he does. To me, it's the purest form of art that you can be. And Gary points out that Brian doesn't even stiffen or spray the feathers before he paints them, and he uses an extremely delicate brush about the width of three eyelashes. So, how did Brian go from painting turkey feathers to crafting turkey calls? Well, he was looking for other places to show his work, and he figured the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention would be a good place to start. He thought about painting pre-made turkey call boxes, but he knew that wouldn't be cost-effective, so... I went to the wood shop and trial and error, and in two months I made up my first dozen calls and entered their decorative call competition down there in a painted box class and uh, got like a second international competition. Yep, second nationally. Since then, Brian's become a six-time national champion call maker in the decorative classes, and his turkey calls are collector's items. But to win in the decorative classes, Brian says the calls also have to place high in sounding like a turkey. Back in the woods, Brian pulls out more calls with painted images. There's a paddle box call, a one-sided call, and another called a scratch box call. He says different hunters prefer different sounds. I gravitate towards rasp. I like raspy calls. It's like Tanya Tucker. She's got a little husky rasp in her voice, you know. But it really doesn't make any difference. It's what the turkey wants. <laughs> it's what the turkey likes. Brian hands me a call so I can try it. Hold the pot on the end of your fingers. Okay. Make, make a little circle with it. Don't pick it up. Just make a circle. She's yelping 90 mile there. <laughs> well, it takes practice. And one other thing. You got to put a motion into it, just like guitar players. Great guitar players has got a motion in it. Uh-huh. You know. They're, they're in it, and it's, it's the same thing with, with these calls. What Brian does has a lot in common with an instrument maker. He has to know the qualities of woods that produce different sounds. This is where all the magic happens. On a warm spring day, I visit Brian's workshop. His grandfather built it from trees he timbered and milled himself. Using his grandfather's lathe, Brian shapes a pot call. I'm going to thin this side so I'm going to get some slope on it. His grandparents told him the family has native heritage, either Shawnee or Cherokee, just a few generations back. And the native people understood that you don't waste anything. Almost all of the wood Brian uses is local salvaged wood. And with the feathers, you know, to create the art on the feather, it's like a tribute to that animal giving his life for you to have yours. These days, Brian gets orders for custom-made call boxes. This guy wants an old truck that's on his granddaddy's farm in a place that he killed the best bird he ever killed. He wants a scene to kind of depict that. It's custom. It's personalized to that guy. There's just one more call Brian wants to show me. It has a pink camouflage pattern painted on the box but the lid is screwed shut, and that's because it's a baby rattle that Brian made for his first granddaughter. 
He says when she gets older, if she wants to go turkey hunting, he'll remove a screw, the lid will hinge, and the turkeys will hear... For Inside Appalachia, Talking Turkey, I'm Connie Kitts. Just like with turkey hunting, people look forward all year long to the spring ramp collecting season. It's now come to a close. If you're not familiar, ramps are these garlicky peppery cousins of onions and shallots. These days, chefs all over the country use ramps, and experts worry the plants could get over-harvested. But what do local communities think? Laura Harbert-Allen has more. Yearly ramp dinners are a spring ritual for my mom. Today, she's in Beaumont, West Virginia. That's Clay County, with three of her friends. It's the last ramp dinner of the season, a sunny, mild Sunday in mid-May. A man approaches the car and asks her if she's here for the annual ramp dinner. Yeah, we sure are. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. Mom crosses the bridge and pulls up to the next stop. Oh, we're great. This is Lady's Day out. I love it. A few minutes later, my mom and friends set up at a picnic table in front of a small white brick school. They dig into takeout containers full of ham, beans, potatoes, and cornbread. And of course, ramps. As they eat, I get to thinking about how many ramps it takes to put on a dinner like this. Turns out folks in Beaumont dig several hundred pounds of ramps every year. The harvested plants are spread out on the school's gym floor on a big blue tarp. Jamila Krajewski is principal of H.E. White Elementary School in Beaumont. Uh, we have every single person over, or female, usually over the age of uh, 55 or 60, in our gym all week long, sitting at the tables, cleaning those ramps crate by crate by crate. 75 crates full of ramps, to be exact. That's the goal each year for the dinner. That's a lot of ramps. We recommend that you only take about one-fifth or 20% of of the plants within a patch. That's Amy Lovell. She's an ecologist with Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia. She says ramps can only be harvested for personal use from the forest, and there are limits. Personal use um, is defined as two gallons per person in possession at any one time. Um, And that's about the amount that fits in a a typical grocery bag. That's less than 75 crates full, right? And there are good reasons for regulations. After all, ramps have made it big in the culinary world. My name is Matt Rapicelli. I'm the executive chef at the Inn at Cedar Falls in Hocking Hills, Ohio. Rapicelli harvests ramps himself from patches scattered around southeast Ohio. So I just go along and I take a little pair of shears and I just uh, snip and collect them and bring them back. So, yeah, pretty simple, very straightforward. And how do you dig them up? So I don't dig. So I pull and I cut just a little bit and I leave the roots and the bases below. So Rapicelli harvests ramps carefully. He doesn't dig up the bulbs, which means the ramps will survive and hopefully produce again next year. But not everyone is as careful as he is. Um, So I had a conversation with somebody just a couple of months ago who was going out to harvest them. 
and didn't realize that you couldn't just lay waste to the entire patch and pull the whole things out. And I was like, oh, geez, you know, so I had to explain to him, you know, about the sustainability and, and those types of things. About a week before the dinner in Beaumont, I'm standing near a small ramp patch in southeast Ohio. My friend Emily and I are definitely following the rules when it comes to harvesting ramps. And I'm just going to use the end of my Subaru key to sort of saw away at the stem of the ramp plant and eat just one leaf. And, uh, oh my gosh, look at this. (laughs) We're being careful because these ramp patches are small and we want them to keep growing. So we only take a few leaves from healthy plants. And like Rapicelli, we don't dig the bulbs. Ramps take seven years, right? Seven years. Mm -hmm. Before they produce a flower stalk with these little, like, dark purpley blackberries that I think are wind dispersed and then they kind of migrate down the hill. Emily is relatively new to the world of ramps. This summer she's teaching environmental education workshops for Rural Action, a local nonprofit based in southeast Ohio that works to raise awareness of sustainable forestry in Appalachia. She worries that ramps are threatened by their popularity in bigger markets. There's been instances of people over-harvesting for money if they have some kind of economic need. But for the most part, the existence of ramps, the continued existence of ramps, has been because of good caretakers and carrying down between generations the ethics of harvesting ramps. What does all of this mean for traditional ramp dinners like the one in Beaumont? Um, We pretty much live off the ramp dinner all year long. Principal Krajewski says that this year's dinner raised $8,500 for the school. Every year, uh, students that have perfect attendance, um, we use this money to buy them a bicycle, a brand-new bicycle. Every field trip that we go on is funded by the ramp dinner. At Christmas time, every student in the school receives a present, and all that comes from the ramp dinner funds as well. The dinners are a tradition that stretch back decades in this community. My name is Sandy Mitchell. And I have lived in this community my entire life. 51 years old, I went to school here. I had ramp dinners when I was in school here. So it's, a, it's been a long-standing tradition here. The Beaumont crew digs ramps by the shovelful, and they dig bulbs. But Sandy tells me that they harvest ramps in places where acres and acres of the plants grow. As far as you could see, downhill, out the hill, and back up the hill. Nothing but ramps. It was a sea of green. They never pick a patch clean. In fact, they pretty much follow the one-fifth or 20% rule. They just harvest in places where there are a lot of ramps. And ecologist Amy Lovell says patches in the Monongahela Forest in West Virginia are doing just fine. Yeah, they, they do seem uh, seem healthy. Um, and I, I don't think the, we're at the point where we're seeing over-harvesting on the forest. Lovell says the forest guidelines are working, that there's growing awareness about how to sustainably harvest ramps. Folks in Beaumont say it's simple logic. Common sense. That's, I mean, that's how we approach it. It's common sense. We recognize it. Ha- we have to, you have to leave a crop to grow, and you can't decimate an area and expect it to grow back. That's just irresponsible, and I would never do that. I love the forest. I love the mountains, and I recognize that we've got to take care of it. Here in Beaumont, caring for ramps is part of caring for the community. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Laura Harbert Allen in Clay County, West Virginia. <laughs> these, these are extra good ramps. But we knew they'd be good here. It tastes more like just like spinach. For many years, ramps were a hidden gem, and now they're more popular. 
But what happens if a hidden gem becomes so popular that it's unsustainable? Take, for example, Canaan Valley in West Virginia, which is becoming a very trendy tourist destination. Canaan is the same region we heard Mason reporting from earlier in the show. So, Mason, tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so for one thing, a new road called Corridor H makes it a lot easier to get there from Washington, D.C. Growing access brings more tourists, which is good for business. But it's also straining the resources of a county with just one stoplight and 7,000 year-round residents. I visited the towns of Thomas and Davis in Tucker County to learn more. It's a chilly spring Saturday in Thomas, and Christopher Quattro is negotiating with customers at Quattro Music Company and Frock and Roll Vintage. How about 10 bucks for the coat? He's got a steady stream of local folks who know him and want the crucial conversation you could only get at small town record stores. But there are a lot of new faces, too. City folks like Maddie Carter, who came over from Washington, D.C. Well, we looked up, like, just kind of getaways close enough that we could get to for a long weekend, and we heard lots of good things about Thomas. There are a lot more visitors like Maddie since the extension of U.S. 48, or Corridor H, opened five years ago. More tourists are coming to Tucker County to play and explore nearly 130,000 acres of federal and state public land. The growing number of people has transformed the nearby towns of Thomas and Davis, supporting more art galleries and small businesses. Thomas is up on a mountain. Even in May, the skies look threatening. There's even some snow coming down. But Front Street is popping with tourists, keeping Quattro busy at the register. Looks like it's going to be 103.79. Great. What's your Venmo? Uh, it is. And when I ask people where they're from, it's now 80%. D.C. Beltway, D.C. Beltway, D.C. Beltway, you know, Northern Virginia, uh, and Pittsburgh. That's changed the town's feel. Darren and Nikki Queen are from nearby Upshur County and first started coming here as teens and now as a married couple. They can see the change just on social media. Now it's like an Instagram spot. Now it's like everyone has to come and like have like their Instagram photos there. And Tucker County makes for great photos. Elected officials have expanded public land around Davis and Thomas for decades, both within the Canaan Valley National Wildlife Refuge and Dolly Sods Wilderness. With the pandemic driving everyone outside, Tucker County is seeing more people than ever. That's good for business, but it's also created problems, especially for working people in the area, says Quattro. We're already seeing between Airbnb, our service community, Service staff can't can't afford to live here. They're being moved to Parsons, which is 15 miles down the mountain, which on a good day is 15, 20 minutes drive. On a bad, foggy, traffic-y behind truck day, it's a half an hour plus drive. The lumber barons who harvested Tucker County's forest in the 1800s gave way in the next century to hunters and adventurers exploring its wild terrain. Like Matt Marcus, who first visited it in 1984 as a mountain biker and now works at Blackwater Bikes in the neighboring town of Davis. Well, it was like the Wild West. There were hundreds of miles of trails going in every direction. There was no um, restriction. But lately, Marcus has been feeling like some of the public land expansions were a bad idea because they're a part of what's fueling the rapid growth in visitors, which puts more stress on the people already here. It used to be April and November. It was totally dead around here, and then now it's just regular business going on. And if we have a nice summer, it's going to be crazy this year. That should position the bike shop for a big year, but it's been hit by supply chain troubles. Marcus says that usually the shop would have 30 or 40 new bikes available by May. This year, they've got two. We're looking at 
probably the worst year ever when we should be having our best year ever. Marcus and his co-worker Sue Haywood are skeptical about the county being able to keep up with the new growth. A lot of wealthy people are coming in here and buying second homes, but then at the same time, like, this, the town of Davis doesn't even have the capacity to change the trash bags in the town park. Just down the road at Sirianni's, an Italian restaurant that's been a cornerstone in Davis since it opened in the 80s, co-owner Walt Rinali is more optimistic. He points to the artistic renaissance in Thomas and growing opportunities for entrepreneurs. But now it's so nice to see young people buying the buildings, doing galleries, being able to ship their work all over the world. I don't think anyone imagined what was going to happen after they opened up that highway. We're within about a six-hour drive of a quarter of the United States population. Rinali, who in a previous life was one of the nation's youngest mayors over in Thomas, acknowledges the towns aren't keeping up. But he sees these as solvable problems with planning and smart investments. We only have one stoplight in the county, which is in Parsons. And we envision three up here eventually going because you have to have policemen out there to direct traffic to come out of Blackwater Falls. That traffic coming out of Blackwater Falls State Park? It's a staple story up here. I also heard it from Ruth Bullwinkle, the park's chaplain. It took over an hour to get out of the park on a Saturday because the traffic was so backed up. Like a lot of locals, Bullwinkle can see different angles to the surge. So the good thing is that there are people coming in, there's money coming into the area that was so depressed. But the bad thing is that a lot of people coming in don't um, appreciate the beauty. They don't take care of, uh, of the creation that's here. I talked to a few state park officials over the weekend who agreed that the crush of tourists can create problems, especially at peak times, like in fall leaf-looking season. But there are fixes. Matt Baker, the superintendent at Blackwater Falls State Park, told me he thinks the pandemic is laying the groundwork for the next generation of visitors and adventure seekers. Like our campground last summer, we saw lots of families, young kids that went camping that may never have gone camping. They fall in love with it. They're taking their kids 30 years from now. Baker says those camping trips happening now will ultimately build the next generation of people who love and protect places like Canaan Valley and Dolly's Hods. Since that story originally aired, there's been more news about Corridor H. The project is getting $200 million from the federal infrastructure package that will expand the road even further. Before we get into our final story, I need to ask you one quick question. What time is it? Now, the answer's not really important. I just want you to notice where did your eyes go when I asked? Did you look at your car radio or the microwave? Maybe your phone? These days, it seems like every electronic device has a clock function in addition to whatever it's supposed to do. But it hasn't always been that way. Not all that long ago, marking the passage of time was the job of one device, a clock. Folkways reporter Zach Harrell recently spent some time with a man who keeps old clocks running. Carl Witt never has to wonder what time it is. 
His tiny little home, which sits on his grandparents' old farm in Fairview, West Virginia, is packed with clocks. Over a hundred, by Carl's estimation, though that does seem like a lowball estimate. Yeah, I have clocks in every room. Even in the bathroom. Even in the bathroom, yeah, I got some in the bathroom. But these aren't just any clocks. Many of them are rare and old. He has a grandfather clock from 1775. He has mantel clocks and vintage German alarm clocks. There's a clock for blind people that gives you a little to let you know 15 minutes have passed. The latest additions to his collection, two gigantic hand-carved Bavarian cuckoo clocks hang in his bedroom. This, this, this one has the best music box I've heard in a long time. Yeah, it's a living mechanism. I've always said that it brings your house to life. Regardless, if you have one, even if you have one in your house, it brings it to life. Carl hasn't always been obsessed with clocks. Originally, he was more of a general interest antiques guy. But then he got a few clocks and needed to have them repaired. And that's when he crossed paths with Charles Decker. Charles was in his late 70s at the time. He had spent over 40 years repairing clocks in Texas, and business was so lucrative he only drove Cadillacs that he paid cash for. By the time Carl met Charles, he had moved back to Mount Morris, Pennsylvania, where he was from. I, I took one in, and then I took another in, and then we, uh, we started exchanging stories a lot, just in general, and, and he had some very unique clocks, too. Now, when Carl would spot a clock at an antique mall or flea market, he'd buy it for Charles. Charles would pay him back, fix it up, and flip it. One day he just asked me, you want to learn how to do this? And that was winding down toward the end of his career. He was 80. He was 79, probably 80 at the time when he asked me. I said, sure. He said, I'm not going to pay you. I said, I don't want you to pay me. I said, you're, you're training me. And... His wife, Rose, told me, she said, he really must like you. So Carl started making the half-hour drive to Charles's home five days a week. Early on, he got all the dirty work. I called it the grunt man. I would take out the movements, and he would work on them, and then I'd put them back in, that kind of situation, or I'd clean the cases for him. But gradually, in addition to that grunt work, Charles started to teach Carl how to repair clocks. He would say, I want you to watch me, you know, how to bush this, how to do this, or how to do that. And sometimes he would go, he'd have to leave, and he'd say, I want you to do this while I'm gone. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, I got to impress this guy, right? You know, because he's like kind of my mentor on that. Charles showed Carl how to replace worn-out gears and tightly coiled metal springs that keep clocks moving. If they break on you or the dogs go bad in them, they, they can tear your fingers off. Not off, but up. And he showed him how to replace a clock's metal bushings, little O-rings that hold the works in place. When they wear out, clocks run erratically or stop working altogether. So Charles showed Carl how to cut new ones and replace them. And they have to line up straight. And if they don't, sometimes you can ruin the whole movement. This mentorship went on for years upon end, five days a week. And Charles never did start paying Carl. He had another full-time job to pay his bills. He was a welder at Pratt and Whitney Engine Services in Bridgeport, West Virginia. Four days a week, he would leave Charles' shop at 2 p.m., 
make the hour drive to Bridgeport, and put in a 10-hour shift. Welding might have paid his bills, but his heart was in Charles's clock shop. I couldn't wait to get there, actually, to help him. You know, just, just to talk to him and just, um, you know, just to learn, learn the art of it. Before we'd start, me and him and his wife would sit and drink a coffee before we would start. And uh, just my grandparents were all gone. And he kind of like filled that void of that. And that, that was a good thing. He was an ordinary character, but I tell you what, I miss him. He was a good friend. Charles died in 2011, at the age of 85. Carl's apprenticeship had ended about two years earlier as Charles slowed down and sold off his clock repair equipment. The two remained friends, but now that his training was over, Carl decided it was time for a big move. It's time for me to live the life that he lived. It's time for me to walk across. Well, he just walked to his shop from his house. It was connected. It's time for me to just walk across the road to my shop. He retired from the factory and set up Curiosity Clockworks. The building used to be his grandfather's horse barn. The workshop's single room is filled floor to ceiling with clocks of all kinds. The first thing you notice when you walk through the door is the syncopated ticking, all their individual rhythms joining together. Lots are from fellow collectors, but others are family heirlooms, brought here in hopes Carl will get them moving again. I've had people bring in clocks from Walmart, quartz clocks, battery-driven. This was my grandmother's. Well, that meant more to me or more to them than just buying it at a flea market or something. No matter what kind of clock it is, Carl repairs each one like Charles is watching over his shoulder. While other repairmen might just replace an old clock's movement with a new one made in a factory in Korea, that's not how Charles would have done it. So that's not how Carl does it either. I like to do it, I like to do it the hard way and make it right <laughs> and then, then to do that kind of work. I try to go with everything original that I can on them. That's getting more and more difficult as time goes on. Sometimes clocks sit in Carl's shop for months, waiting for the right gear or movement to appear on eBay. And for that to happen, that means someone else's cuckoo clock was damaged badly enough that the only thing left to do was sell it for parts. Even though the parts are becoming harder to find, Carl doesn't expect clocks will ever fall completely out of usefulness. They've lasted this long, after all. Some of those clocks, like I said, that are 200 and some years old that are still running, and you... you your cell phone only lasts a year or two, or maybe three, four, if you get that much out of it. And then it's outdated. Where a clock, you know, it never changes itself at all. So Carl Witt plans to keep Curiosity Clockworks ticking along. The factory called recently and offered him his old job back. He took it. Welders, it seems, are as hard to find as gears for cuckoo clocks. Carl plans to continue working on clocks in his free time. After all, that's how he learned in the first place. And he might even train an apprentice someday, if the Carl to his Charles happens to come along. Before I left, there was just one question I had to get answered. Of all the clocks in his house, which one did Carl use to wake himself up in the morning? My phone. Because <laughs> if, well, and then I said, well, if the electric goes off, you know. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Fairview, West Virginia.
I gotta say, I've enjoyed hearing all the different sounds from across the region in our stories today. From the bogs of dolly sods to even cuckoo clocks. I, don't forget the turkey calls. <laughs> and four of these stories came out of our folk waste project. The ones on, yes, turkey calls and clocks, ramps, and paddle makers. Our team of reporters has produced almost 90 stories about folkways in Appalachia. You can check them all out at wvpublic.org. So we want to hear about your traditions, whether in your family or community. Tell us about it. We're at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org or at InAppalachia on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, The Chamber Brothers, and West Swing. Bill Lynch is our producer. Roxy Todd originally produced this episode. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org or leave us a message at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.